Hey guys, how's it going? Uh, my name is Justin. I'm the children's pastor for Edgewater, and I'm really thankful to be here with you guys tonight. Um, if you haven't been with us, we have been going through Luke, the early chapters. Today, we're in Luke chapter 6. Um, so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Jesus, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for your word. I pray that um, all the kids in the kids' wing would have so much fun tonight learning about you and who you are. I pray for the middle schoolers and the high schoolers that they would have a great time and that they would draw near to you. And I pray that um, in here you would speak to us as well, that we would know more about your son Jesus and that um, we would just grow closer to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's go. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So here we're introduced to some new characters. They're the Pharisees. They become pretty prevalent from here on. And the Pharisees are, um, they're the legalists. They're the religious bigoted group. And I'll use legalism and religion synonymously. They, um, legalism is whenever you take rules or tradition or books or teaching that are outside of the Bible and you elevate them to be equal with those that are in the Bible and the authority of the Bible. And when that happens, things can get pretty weird. So the Jews, they, they have the rule, just like God said, hey, keep the Sabbath day holy, keep it set apart. And then legalists really want to make sure that no one can break the rule, so they have to then define what work is. You know, you can't work on the Sabbath, so what does it mean to work? So um, in Israel, if you uh, go into a hotel, they'll have Sabbath elevators on the Sabbath day. Because if you complete a circuit, that's doing work on the Sabbath. So they have these elevators that go on the Sabbath day nonstop to every floor in case you need to go somewhere. So they're really clear on what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Like another rule is you have to, um, you cannot travel equal to or greater than, it's called a mile. Like if you travel greater than a mile, then the effort exerted from that activity, well, then you, you break the law and all of a sudden you're doing work. And what I thought was really funny about that is it doesn't count if you're on a body of water. Because if you're on a boat, it can become really hard to tell how far you've traveled. You can't, like, there can be currents, there could be wind. Even if you put your anchor down, there's some swaying. So they go, okay, if you're over a body of water, it doesn't count. And what I thought was hysterical about this is there's some really smart Jewish people who don't want to break the law, so they'll keep a bottle full of water under the driver's seat of their car. So they can travel, and it doesn't count. And God's in heaven going, ah, he got me. Man, didn't see that one coming. When we make these kind of rules, it, it 
paints this picture of God like God's really petty and it's not right and it, it gets kind of weird. And Christians can do that too, where we add rules and, right? Have you ever heard of a legalistic Christian? I've, I haven't, but this can happen with Christians. And in fact, that's what the book of Galatians is about. You have this guy, his name is Saul, and he's like the most Pharisee of all of the Pharisees. It, he even says that people who were older than him would look at him and go, wow, I want to be as legalistic as this guy. He knew all the rules. He knew all the traditions. He had all of the verses and all of the, the things he had to say memorized. And he, he was the legalistic dude. And then he meets Jesus, has his whole life transformed, and um, changes his name to Paul, goes on this lifelong mission trip to save people, introduce them to Jesus, telling them about Jesus's kingdom and his redemptive work. And along that mission, he meets this group of people called the Galatians, and he introduces them to Jesus. They get saved. He leaves. When he leaves, there's these other group of teachers that come in. And they come in, and they tell everyone, yeah, Jesus is good, but you need more to be saved. And so there's all, all these people come to church, and they're all excited to learn about the Lord, and they go, yeah, you Jesus is really good, but if you really want to be saved, you must also be circumcised. So now there's a bunch of men who have come into church that day, and they love the Lord, they're excited about what Jesus has done, and now they're put in this dilemma where salvation is on the line. Either they experience weeping and gnashing of teeth, pain and misery, or hell. That's what they're faced with. And there's a bunch of men who are in church that day going, I'm kind of on the fence now. And so Paul writes this letter to the Galatians saying, no, grace is a gift freely given. If you start doing things to make God like you more, you're actually under the weight of the entirety of the law. Either you accept grace that God loves you for who you are, regardless of all the wrong that you've done, and all of your righteousness is as filthy rags, as he writes in Romans, or you're under the law. So Christians can do it too. Legalism can show up... um, pretty much anywhere where people are. We like our rules. We like to feel like we're better than others. So Galatians tells us that if we're not trusting entirely on the finished work of Jesus, that we are trusting in ourselves and in the law to save ourselves. And the law is a terrible savior. We can't keep it. We can't obey it. It won't save us. So the Pharisees, they show up. Jesus and his disciples are in this field. They're eating some grain. They're hungry. And um, the Pharisees, they know their rules. They love to point out when other people aren't keeping their rules. Their rules have made them really bold. And they come out to Jesus and they go, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath day? Because to their count, they can see four rules Jesus isn't keeping. He's reaping, he's threshing, he's winnowing, and he's preparing food on the Sabbath. They're like, there's four. We got to get this guy. So they go up to Jesus and they say, why are you doing what isn't lawful on the Sabbath day? And Jesus he doesn't do what I would do, where I would argue their legalism. And I go, well, that's not what it's about, and you've missed the point. Jesus points them right back to the Bible and says, well, hold on. Don't you guys know 1 Samuel 21, where David, who's been appointed by God to be a guy named Saul's successor to be king, Saul gets disqualified because of some failures he has, and he loses his mind gets spears and starts chucking them at David to try to kill David. So David is running for his life and it's the Sabbath day and he's running and he runs to this temple with him and his men. They get to the temple and they ask the priest who's there, they say, 
do you have any food? We're out of provisions, we're out of rations, we're hungry, we're in a bad position, can you help us out? And the priest goes, well, are your men godly? I, I, I don't have anything here other than the bread of the presence. And the bread of the presence was 12 loaves of bread that'd be baked once a week, that'd be set before God in the temple, it, um, the 12 loaves being the 12 tribes of Israel, kind of illustrating that we rely solely upon God for all that he provides for us. So it's the bread of the presence. Priest says, well, I only have that. David goes, can I have that? And it's only lawful for the priest to eat this food. And the priest goes, well, are your your men godly? Have they been fooling around with women? And David says, my men are godly. We haven't been pillaging. We haven't been messing around with girls. We're just in a bad spot and we're hungry. So the priest gives them the bread of the presence. And David takes it to his men and they feast. And did David sin by running on the Sabbath day for his life? Did David sin by eating the bread of the presence? Did the priest sin by giving it to David? And that's the problem, is now Jesus brings up this situation that they would know really well. And he says, well, if David and his men could eat on the Sabbath, the bread of the presence, then it's probably just fine in the eyes of the Father that me and my men, who are greater than David and David's men, eat a few pieces of grain out in the field. And what has happened with the legalist is, what can sometimes happen is when we elevate our rules, it puts us in this bad position where either we're faced with our rules might not be right, or we have to rewrite scripture to agree with our point of view. So the legalist has become bold, he's become unbiblical, and Jesus points it out. They don't care much for that. So we're led then to another Sabbath on verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. So two Sabbath days back to back, Luke gives us, I think probably because it'd be really easy for the Pharisees and for anyone who was religious to look at Jesus and see that he wasn't doing some of the things that they expect him to do. He's doing some things differently. It'd be really easy to accuse him. It'd be really easy for him to stand out. Verse seven, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So Jesus, I believe here, he shows the Pharisees that they've missed the entire point of God. So Jesus has been making himself a reputation as a healer. If you have little um, subsections illustrated in your Bible, you see just on the next earlier page, Jesus heals a man with an unclean demon. Jesus heals many. Jesus cleanses a leper. Jesus can do things and heal people. He's made a name for himself as a healer. There's a man that goes to this church whose right hand is withered. Uh, Dan shared with us last week that the Pharisees would have been like the doctors. They would diagnose. So the Pharisees probably know this guy. He goes to their church. They diagnosed the issue with his hand. They're familiar with his struggle. They probably prayed with him about what was going on, hoping that God would heal. Now Jesus has come, who is a healer, and rather than them being like, oh my gosh, Jesus is here. He's able to heal this guy. They're waiting to accuse him. 
they've completely missed the point of God. They've elevated their rules so high that they would rather follow them than see the suffering eased of one of their fellow human beings, one of their fellow church members. And I believe Jesus is saying, you've missed the entire point of God. Our God loves mercy. And I love that Jesus says in the previous uh, verse, the previous paragraph, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the boss. You're not the boss. And I love that. And so Jesus heals this guy. I believe that... um, these legalists that were shown, we see a few things from them. They're boastful when they come up to Jesus and they tell him, you've broken some rules. They're unbiblical. They, they're upset when Jesus brings him the Bible and says, I don't know about your point of view. And right here, I think it shows us that their rules makes them pretty unloving towards people. Their rules get elevated above people and they forget that our God loves mercy. And then in verse 11, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So Jesus, he shows up. Jesus doesn't do any action. Jesus just says, come here, stretch out your hand. And in that act of faith, the man's hand is restored. They were waiting for Jesus to maybe touch him or Jesus do some sort of doctoral act so that they can accuse him outright. And he doesn't do that. That frustrates them. And so they want to find a way to accuse Jesus. I think legalism makes us take ourselves really seriously. And they're very frustrated and they're very upset that their plans didn't work out. And when I was reading this, I was reminded of a few years ago, I was over in the office building with the high schoolers and Rebecca Bender was sharing her testimony. I don't know if you know Rebecca Bender. She has an office um, that we share with her and she has a really difficult and a really um, intense testimony where she was involved in sex trafficking. And um, it's really devastating and it's really hard to hear. And uh, at the end of her testimony, one of the high schoolers said, what do you want to have happen to the man who's responsible for so much of the abuse that you went through, who's so, for all the vile, heinous acts, for all of the neglect, for all the anxiety and fear that you had, not only for your life, but for the life of your daughter. What do you want to have happen to the man who's responsible for all that happened to you? And I'm sitting in the back, and I had already made up my mind when that question got made. I know exactly what I want to have happen to that guy. I don't think that guy has a place on this earth. I don't think that guy is fit to live. I don't want that kind of evil anywhere. Like the, the, the heinous evil thing. I'm just like, that guy doesn't deserve life. But Rebecca answered, I think, correctly. She said to the kid, without even hesitating, without missing a beat, she goes, oh, I, I want him to meet Jesus, and I want him to be redeemed. And I'm sitting in the back going, shoot, that should have been my answer. <laughs> but I think that's what can happen is when, we're, when we get legalistic and we get to a point where, well, they're not as bad as my bad or they're worse than my bad, they're not as good as my good, that can make us where we get legalistic, where we start thinking that there are different tiers of Christianity. And the Bible tells us that there's, no not right, there's none righteous, no, not one. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags, that there's nobody good, nobody worth saving, that Jesus, his grace is freely given to really, really bad people, that we're all really, really bad, we're all undeserving. Then Jesus calls his 12 apostles in verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. So Jesus has a group that follows him called disciples. 
He prays all night about it, and he chooses 12 people to be appointed to the office of apostle. And that's a very specific thing. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that he's the last of the people to be appointed to that office of apostle. And what the office of apostle was is the responsibilities were to govern and establish the church under Jesus Christ when it was getting started. And they had the authority and the ability to write and to speak the words of God equal to authority as the Old Testament prophets. They had a very unique job and very unique responsibilities. And so let's see some of the people that Jesus calls to it. Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. What a bummer to be the other Judas, right? Like imagine Jesus, is, he had died, he'd been buried, he's been resurrected, he's been walking around with people, then he's ascended into heaven, and you're going around telling people about the redemptive work of Jesus, and there's a group of people, and they go, what, who are you? And they go, well, I'm, a dis, I'm, I'm an apostle. I was with Jesus. And they go, what's your name? And he goes, well, I'm Judas. And they go, we've heard of you. I don't know if I want to be around you. It's a bummer. So how many of these names do you recognize? Because I recognize Matthew. He wrote a book of the Bible. And James is familiar. We all know Peter. Um, John is the one that Jesus loved. He really wanted us to know that. You read his gospel. The one that Jesus loved. But there's some people in here that we don't know very well, like Bartholomew. So did Jesus go to his disciples and he picked 12, hoping that one would work out, kind of a lottery kind of thing? Like one of these guys will turn out good. What I think when I was reading this is it really struck me because um, sometimes we can get where we evaluate someone's work based on the amount of people who follow them, kind of like on Instagram, is this person worthy to listen to? Is this person any good? And what it reminded me of is a story in Exodus where God comes to Moses and says, I want you to set officials over my people. And some of them are going to lead thousands, and some of them are going to lead hundreds, some of them are going to lead fifties, and some of them are going to lead tens. It doesn't mean that their job is any less important. God called them. God wanted them. Jesus spent all night praying about the dudes that he was going to choose And so I think Bartholomew is just one of those guys that he doesn't get radio time. He doesn't get TV time. He never wrote a best-selling book. He's not like Matthew. He's not like John. James is minor. You know, he's only one, whatever. But even if the ministry that God has called you to is only with a select few group of people, it's really, really important. I had someone um, come and grab me. He's helping in the kids wing tonight. He's one of my favorite guys. And he said that Jesus always had his, 12, his group of 12 with him. But he always had the three guys, Peter, James, and John, everywhere he went. Like whenever you go to pray, bring these guys with them. And he had these three dudes that he was always investing in and always um, pouring into. And he asked me, there's a bunch of kids back there that I'm supposed to pastor and be a part of their lives. You just can't do it. There's too many people that go to Edgewater. Stop coming here. <laughs> and he goes, you just can't do it. Do you have three guys that you're pouring into? And it just kind of, it made me really think. And I can only count two, so I'm working on it. If anyone's free, want to get our coffee later, come grab me. But he said, is there three guys that you're really pouring into, like Jesus? Whatever God has called us into, 
whatever area of ministry God has called us into, are there people that you're pouring into to carry off the work? It really stuck out to me. It really made me think about it. And um, something I think can happen is we get frustrated when we're not the people that lead thousands. And then it made me wonder, like, well, if I get that way, have I even been pouring into the people God has called me to pour into, even if it's a small group? So Jesus calls these men to apostles. A disciple is someone who comes to learn. That's what disciple is. They come and they learn from a teacher. An apostle, what it means is to be sent out. They get sent out and they carry out the work. And I think for us, at some point, there's a point in our walk with the Lord where we stop taking the posture of a disciple, which is where we come and we learn and we gather and we, we learn from God's word together, but we then start to take the position of that like someone in here, like an apostle, where we get sent out, where we're supposed to do the work of God, where we start getting involved in ministry. And some of us can get kind of worried where we go, well, I don't have the right teaching and I don't know if I've read the right books. I don't know if I've been saved long enough. I don't know if my walk with the Lord is where it should be for me to start investing in people and sharing Jesus with people. And it reminds me of David and Goliath, where God has all the armies of Israel all lined up against the Philistines. And all in that army, you have all these soldiers who have trained all their lives. They have armor that fits them, that has been fitted for them. They know how to grapple. They know, how, they know all about their swords. They know all this stuff. And God goes, none of those guys. I want David, who's out with some sheep, who doesn't really know much about a sword, who doesn't have armor that fits him. They try to get him armor. And he's like, I just don't know how to move in this thing. God goes, I want that guy. I want the one that, that you would not expect. And that's why I think that you have these 12 apostles. He didn't choose any of the guys who were working at the seminary. They're all legalists. He didn't go for any of them. He didn't go for the guys that you would expect. He went for the people that you would not expect. Simon Peter that morning was a fisherman full time. And now he's Jesus's right-hand man. He probably still had a sailor's mouth. And so I think for us, when we feel that God has a calling on our life, we should jump in and anticipate that either God will train us up or he'll bring into our lives the right kind of people to equip us. And that's why I can't encourage you enough that on your way out of here today, you grab a kid's wing application. (laughs) Gotta try. So verse 17, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. You know, wild verse, all these people come, all the disciples in a great crowd, and it, it just says, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. That's insane. And I don't know why it doesn't expound on that. I want to know more about that. That's all we get. Yeah, power just came out and healed them all. Luke's just, at this point, when Luke is writing, he's like, that, that's all there is to it. Jesus can do things no one else can do. Jesus can do things we can't even fathom, exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think. There's nothing outside of God's power or reach. And so Jesus, he's got this huge crowd in front of him. I don't believe that Jesus only spoke for four minutes, 
But all we're given is this little synopsis. We're given just the cliff notes, what Luke wants us to know. It's a little bit different than Matthew's section when he recounts this. Um, So we're just given a little bit. We're given just what we need to know, and we can talk about it. Verse 20, And he lifted up his eyes on the disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So Jesus lays out two different groups of people. The first group is ones that should be pitied when you look at them. They're the marginalized, they're the outcast, they're the underdog. They're a group of people who are hungry and poor and needy and sad but also spiritually, they're dissatisfied with their lot in life. They're dissatisfied with the injustice that they see in the world. They're the ones that cry out to the Lord. They're the ones that are seeking God and going, God, this isn't right. I don't see your, where are your promises for us. They're the ones that are crying out to God. And the second group of people are the ones who are satisfied by their material possessions and they have no reason or need to cry out to God because they have everything they could ever want. They got a good reputation. They got people who look up to them and esteem them. They have all the things they could ever want. They're completely okay with the current world system. Why would they ever want it to change? And Jesus says to that group of people, one day you'll have nothing. And then Jesus changes the direction of his talk in verse 27. At first it was, what's your position to God? And then he goes, what's your position to man? In verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, Offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So I read that. And the first thing that I thought, I even texted Trevor Hanks about it. I'm like, that's, that's unreasonable. You just think that's unreasonable? Like, love those who hate you. Pray for those who abuse you. Can you imagine walking into a bank and you say, I'm here for a loan, a pretty substantial loan, but don't expect for me to repay it for that's the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would say, hey, let me introduce you to security. We'd like for you to move your business to a different bank. Could you imagine that? There's no way. And so 
you're looking at this, and this is what Jesus is saying to this large group of people. This is how you're supposed to behave with one another, and it's completely unreasonable. And I believe it's shocking for these people to hear that they're supposed to do all these things. If someone steals from you, don't go and demand it back. If someone asks for your jacket, don't forget to give them your shirt too. If they hit you, give them the other cheek to hit too. Completely unreasonable. And it reminds me of when Jesus says that a servant is not greater than his master. And that Jesus' love for us, it's unreasonable. It, it really doesn't make any sense that God would have a kingdom in heaven where the streets are lined with gold that he has infinite multitudes of angels to serve him. He's completely satisfied in and of himself. He doesn't need people's adoration. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our affection. He doesn't need our love. He's completely satisfied in and of himself with everything that he has. And yet he would create human beings who immediately are rebellious and turn away from him and decide we would like to be gods ourselves. We want to choose what's right and wrong for ourselves. We don't need your love. We don't need to follow you. And then still find a way to work with them, chase after them, follow them through all the different times that they go, you know what, no, we don't want you, don't want you as our God, we don't want you as our God. Eventually go, fine, I will, the most infinitely powerful being that has ever existed, humble himself, be born as a meek baby to an impoverished family with a bad reputation. Luke chapter two tells us that Jesus humbles himself to his mom. His imperfect mother, he humbles himself as a child and listens to her. And then he grows up, chooses these 12 friends who are kind of, you know, they're not the best. They're, they've got some disputes. They're, they're interesting characters who later will abandon him after one of his best friends betrays him. They, he will then be mocked, slandered, hungry. He's homeless for most of his ministry. He'll be abused. He'll get his clothes ripped away. He'll be nailed on a cross where he looks down at his mom who's weeping as he's dying. And as he's struggling with, asphy with asphyxiation and just being beaten for hours and hours on end, he prays and he says, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. He prays for those who abuse him. And while Jesus could have called down angels and destroyed everyone, it's been, you know, and I'm over this, Jesus turned his cheek. Jesus didn't withhold anything. Jesus gave everything for us. And so if Jesus would do that for us, how are we supposed to treat our fellow brothers and sisters? How are we supposed to treat people that we live with? If a servant is not greater than his master, I think we're supposed to love people unreasonably. I think we're supposed to give generously. I think we're supposed to forgive really quickly. And that's why I think Jesus then moves to the next part of his section, which I think is really hard. It's the most famous verse in the Bible right now. It used to be John 3.16. Now it's judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus earlier, we just saw, had just been judged, probably condemned by these Pharisees, this legalistic type that said, you're not obeying God, you're not loving God, you're not obeying his laws right, you must not really be a follower of the true God. And then Jesus goes in with, this is how you're actually supposed to love people, and this is how you're actually supposed to follow the Lord, and it's completely unreasonable, and it's very difficult, and it's very unlikely that anyone can do that very well. And then Jesus moves to, 
also don't judge. People really like to judge. This is what we're really good at. It's what the Pharisees are really good at. It's what these people would be used to. If you are a someone who follows the Lord, you're a judgy person because you know all the rules. You know what you should do, you shouldn't do. And then to then condemn them. And so I was reading that and it reminded me of um, 1 Corinthians 5 where you go, because okay, judge not and you will not be judged. Are Christians ever allowed to judge? Are Christians ever allowed to judge the walk of another person? And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, and I'll just read it for you. It's a really interesting chapter. This, what has happened is in this church, the, one of the leaders of the church is having a relationship with either his mother or his mother-in-law. And in either way, it's a mom fail. It's not a good deal. So what happens is, it, this is what he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he clarifies. You shouldn't so associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging of outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from amongst you. Today, we're doing John chapter 5 with your kids. And um, the topic is Jesus is the only one who heals. And in John chapter 5, it says that all judgment has been given from the Father to the Son. Jesus is the only one who gets to decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And what can happen often is when Christians correct Christians, we're coming at each other going, man, how it should go. So I don't mean to be a jerk, but this is what I see. I don't know if this is right, but what can happen sometimes with Christians to non-Christians is you go, man, I don't think God would approve of your life or the things you're saying or the TV shows you're watching or the things you're doing. And when you start to condemn and, or when you judge someone who doesn't have a savior, I believe that's when it becomes condemning. You and I can't condemn a believer. Jesus is the one who judges. Jesus is the one who condemns. Jesus is the one who says they're going to heaven, they're going to hell. Jesus is the only one who has the final say. But with us, when we start judging those who don't have a savior, it can become condemning. Oh, God doesn't approve of your lifestyle. Dude, I don't know your God. And so Mark Scudstad has the best saying that I've kept with me. And I don't know if it's his, but I'm giving him all the credit. What he said is, you can't clean a fish until you catch it. 
So if you're trying and putting all this effort into cleaning a fish that you haven't even caught, people are going to look at you and the things you're doing go, man, that guy's a dork. Like, he's putting all this effort and so it doesn't make any sense. If they're caught, then yeah, we need to be people, iron sharpens iron. We need to be people who are encouraging each other to a better walk with the Lord, looking at each other's walk. And Jesus is going to talk about that next, the blind leading the blind. Can the blind lead the blind? Totally, they'll fall into a pit. It's not good. And Jesus brings that up that, yeah, Christians should be evaluating each other's walk. But with non-believers, we need to introduce them to Jesus. And we need to trust the Holy Spirit in Jesus that there will be a work done in them. Then they'll come to you and they'll ask you, man, I want to know more about that. Can we talk more about that? We need to be people who move, unlike the Pharisees who love to judge and love to condemn, we need to be people who move straight from judgment right to forgiveness. And, And recognize that a lot of people who don't know the Lord they're not trying to be evil people. Some are, but most aren't. They're just, they're just doing life and they're in desperate need of a savior. And most of them, unfortunately, don't even know it. And if we aren't living a life where we love our enemies and turn the other cheek and live the lifestyle that's unreasonable like Jesus asked, they're gonna be completely in, uninterested in our walk. Our walk needs to be attractive to them. Unlike anything of this world, they go, man, this guy likes me. I am terrible to him and he loves me. It's driving me crazy. That's the kind of walk we need to have. So then Jesus continues in verse 39. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see a speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take out the log of, out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. You ever notice it's really easy to see the sin in someone else's life that you are dealing with yourself? That's what sticks out really well because we're really familiar with it. And we see it and we go, oh, you shouldn't do that. And then it's kind of like, man, I shouldn't either. We won't talk about that right now. But that's what Jesus, I think, is pointing out right here is we do need to be people who rebuke each other as believers. The um, proverb says that a wise man loves rebuke. He'll thank you for it. But a foolish man hates rebuke and he'll hate you for it. I want to be a wise man. When someone comes to me who's a believer and says, man, I don't know about this walk. I don't know about all that candy you give to those kids. I go, well, I'm going to take that to the Lord and I'm going to pray about it. But we need to be people who are open to rebuke and people who rebuke each other in kindness, knowing that when we see sin in other people, it might be something that's in our life as well, that we need to be like the disciples. When Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, our first reaction should be, is it me? Not, is it John? Is it him? Is it Simon? It needs to be, is it I? Jesus, could I be the one that's doing this? Is it me that's struggling with this? Is it me that could do this? And then Jesus moves To verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus isn't looking for behavioral modification out of us. Jesus isn't looking for us to be better or act better or to do better. That's legalism. 
Jesus is asking for us to be completely regenerated. Every single one of us, when we're born, has got an evil tree planted in us. We just did Noah. Um, we did Genesis early with, on Sunday with your kids. And what we talked about is the ark, it's up and then it lands and the dry land appears and God promises to Noah, I won't ever flood the earth again. And then God makes a comment about the condition of man's heart, that it's evil from his youth. All of us from our youth have got a bad tree planted in us. Jesus doesn't want us to try to do better with that bad tree because bad trees produce bad fruit. A bad tree isn't ever going to start producing good fruit. What Jesus wants us to do and be is to be regenerated. Jesus wants us to uproot that bad, evil tree, that bad tree with all of its bad fruit, and he wants us to allow him to plant in us a good tree. Ephesians 4 tells us that when we get saved, we're supposed to put off the old man and put on the new man. So Jesus doesn't want us to do better with what we currently have. Jesus wants us to take on a new personality with new habits and with new desires, with new affinities, with new pleasures, new attitudes, new character. He wants you to be a whole new person. He wants you to be a whole new tree. And he wants you to give up that heart of stone that we've been dealing with for so long. And God will give you a heart of flesh that's still imperfect, but it's going to, through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, desire to be more and more like Jesus. And every day we can be someone who evaluates ourselves and goes, this the walk Jesus wants for me? Is my life being a, a life that produces good fruit? And then we're almost done. We're getting there. Uh, Luke 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundations on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of the house was great. If we are people where our foundation, our life is built upon our works or our goodness and this is how well I've performed, this is how well I've held traditions, when strife and destruction and, and bad things inevitably come our way, it can crush us. There are Christians who believe that if you have enough faith, you won't get sick. Stuff like that. Well, and then what happens when you get sick? Well, it was your fault, right? The Bible tells us that God allows it to rain on the just and the unjust, that bad things happen in a broken world. It's not good. Bad things happen to people who love God. Look at Job. Job is very difficult for those Christians to read because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to them. And so if your life and your foundation is built upon how well you've performed, how well you've kept rules, how well you've recited prayers, how well you've memorized verses, then when all those bad things come, you go, well, I didn't deserve this. God, this isn't what you promised me. And I think God would go, I'm not interested in your rules. I don't think you're doing this right. But Jesus says, if we come to him, verse 47, everyone who comes to me, if we come to Jesus and our foundation is built on Jesus, not on what we have done, but what Jesus has already completed on our behalf, if our foundation is not how well I can perform, but recognizing I underperform most times, I'm not even a B student when I'm following Christ. I'm not average, I'm pretty below average. 
If we recognize that Jesus has already completed the work, that Jesus' grace is, is sufficient to cover all that I've done, then when strife and when bad things come, when people uh, spurn our names and revile us on account of our walk with the Lord, we can rest assured knowing that no height nor depth nor powers or anything in this world could ever separate us from the love of God. We're safe, secured. We're adopted sons and daughters of Jesus. And we are in his family. We're safe. Our foundation is secure. It doesn't matter what comes our way. Nothing can move that rock. And so guys, this week, what this reminded me of is it really can, we can really quickly become legalistic people where we get boastful in our walk. And that boastfulness will often lead to us becoming unbiblical and often lead to us then becoming where we don't care about people, where we become unloving to people and we start taking ourselves really seriously. This week, I pray that we would be those that evaluate our walk. Are we like the blind leading the blind? I don't want to be. Am I someone who's looking at my brother's life with a speck in his eye and I've got a log in mine? I don't want to be. Let's be people this week who put away the legalism, who put away all of the rules that are in our lives that we have put there and recognize that Jesus has saved us just by grace, that we aren't all that great to begin with. And God, who would love us so much, would give himself even for a wretch like me. Let's be people who accept that grace and are excited about that grace because that'll motivate you to love other broken people. Because when you recognize I'm a piece of garbage, this person's not that bad. We can be friends. It'll motivate you. It'll make you excited to be with people. It'll make you excited to love people. So Jesus, I pray this week that you would help us throw out the legalism that's in our life, that you would help us throw out the, the parts of us that are, are bitter and rebellious and want to be greater than others, who wants us to be esteemed and looked up to for our works, for our righteousness, for whatever work we have done, and that we would be people who are in constant remembrance that your grace is a gift that is unearned, it's unmerited, it's undeserving, and it's been given freely upon us solely because you love us. You love us in our brokenness, and you are excited to see us transformed into the image of yourself. And so, Jesus, I pray this day that we'd walk closer with you and we'd be coming more and more into your image. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, kids' applications are just in the hallway. Thanks, guys.